0: Hello and welcome to the epilogue of the hundred day writing challenge. My name is Tim Clare, and uh, this is my podcast, uh, Death of a Thousand Cuts. It's a podcast for writers, um, and if you're listening to this, you've probably, although not necessarily, uh, done the hundred day writing challenge. Uh, today's episode is not a not like the previous episodes of the hundred day writing challenge. It's not one with an exercise where I'm trying to teach some aspect of creative writing. Um, if you haven't done the crea- the 100 day, uh, chat, create, 100 day Writing Challenge, by the way, you can find it just by searching for 100 Day Writing Challenge Tim Clare, or going on my website, or um, looking on SoundCloud, or just searching for Death of a Thousand Cuts. Any of those things, you'll find links and all the episodes, and I'm putting up transcripts, audio transcripts with text from all of it, but it's just... Um, But probably you're here because you've done the 100 days in some way or another. And and what I want to say right at the beginning of this episode is this is going to be um, in the style of what in my normal podcast, in case you don't listen to it, is called a writing ramble. So, like, literally, I just press record. I don't really plan what I'm going to talk about. And then I just say what's on my mind on the subject at hand, whatever that subject happens to be. Sometimes I don't even have a subject in mind before I start. Uh, these are kind of just like little audio diaries. I enjoy doing them because they're easy and I often discover what I think while doing them. But by their nature, unedited, unplanned, um, they tend to be rather discursive and uh, mealy mouthed and they tend to run long. So just be warned, uh... Some people, you know, enjoy them because they can hear me thinking through stuff. But it's certainly an acquired taste and not for the faint hearted. Here be dragons. I absolutely do not uh, blame you or feel in any way offended if um, you'd rather uh, go for some of my slightly more succinct. I mean, I can be uh, digressive and uh, go all around the houses at the best of times. But um, these episodes tend not to be the best of times from a brevity perspective. So um if you want to stick around and hear me talk about my feelings now the course is finished now I've written and recorded and produced and uploaded all of it you can do if and I'm you know hopefully going to reflect on a few things about creative writing and I'd like to if I remember at some stage just recommend a few books about creative writing that I'm particularly fond of it is into, and i'll put links to those to where you can get hold of those in the show notes although you could have, of course just get them from the library um it's entirely possible because of the way these things goes that i'll forget to talk about them at some stage but now i've said it's entirely possible that i'll forget to talk about them that's a way of sort of shaming myself into not forgetting so i can fulfill at least that small um it wasn't wasn't a promise, but it was certainly an offer that I made earlier in the course. So, the hundred day writing challenge uh, is finished, and it's the second free course, free audio creative writing course that I've made online. I don't know why I didn't need to specify free or anything. It's just the second course I've ever made, but it happens to be free and done by podcast. Um, the first one was the Couch to Eighty K Writing Bootcamp, which was forty eight episodes long i believe right is that is that right yeah it's like eight weeks and assumed that you took sunday as a day of rest so six episodes per week 100 day writing challenge i started off sort of mentally starting to dive like slice it into weeks and very quickly was just like this doesn't work on any level uh because we don't work in a metric calendar, because the French Revolution failed, ultimately because it was pushed back by uh, reactionaries who didn't who didn't like the idea of a a month called Thermidor, which is a cool name for a month. That was all the French Revolution was asking for, wasn't it? Surely I don't know. I don't really don't really go into these things in much detail. Something about wanting to call. A month Thermidor and uh, Marat, like sat in a a chemical bath and got stabbed. And uh, some people got their heads chopped off. And that was about it. Seems fine to me. Anyway, um, that was me. That's how I... That is my knowledge of anything, by the way, is like a few sort of like apparently apparent deep cuts that are actually just surface law but if you just kind of toss them out there to anyone who appears to be inquiring about whether you have knowledge of that era or thing or subject or whatever you can kind of it's like kind of throwing up chaff you can kind of give the impression of a deeper knowledge of which they're only scratching the surface and then hopefully that stops the inquiry before they ask you any kind of question of substance you can go oh yeah i've got a smattering of that yeah i know this you know it's like it's like knowing two phrases in a language but making one of them a slightly obscure phrase so when if you deliver it it implies you're a fluent speaker of the language when actually that is it this is this has been a lot of my life right has been throwing up i guess intellectual scarecrows to stop people realizing that i don't know as much as i pretend (laughs) um and my life has got a lot happier actually and it got more got less anxious and just generally better since i sort of embraced on the advice of a a very wise friend um basking in ignorance was how she (laughs) how she put it this idea of just um admitting to people during a conversation when you don't when you're not following what they're talking about when you don't get the reference when you don't know you haven't seen that film you haven't read that book you don't know that character from history or this famous person you're not sure what that word means i've got better at that actually at stopping people goodness me during interviews, it's made a huge difference of me just going. I'm really sorry. I, just, I don't even say sorry anymore. But I just go, "Excuse me, I." You said this word. What does that mean? Instead of like nodding, because I don't know, because I want to look con- convivial, because I want to appear to be as smart as them. Actually, turns out it's not always a hugely rewarding experience for someone to um, who you're chatting to in an interview or whatever to feel like everything they're telling you you already know, right? So if you go, I don't know about that. Can you explain that? You use this phrase. I'm not sure I understand what you mean. Can you explain it? If you, Unless you're doing that in the most sort of like arch, sarcastic, deliberately undermining way possible, unless you make it clear that you go, I don't, I'm sorry, I don't, I'm not sure I quite follow your train of thought. You know, like as long as you're not doing it from a kind of like hostile place of gotcha journalism right you're like I really want to know my goodness it's exciting like I feel like I learned loads more Um, and people don't tend to look down their their nose at you for not knowing as much about them as uh, as them about a subject in fact people tend to respond quite well to it like I've always found in creative writing groups and it's something that I started saying to people just so they know I'm like if I say something or something is brought up in the group if I use a term or reference a book or say something and you don't understand it either it's a reference that you don't get or I haven't explained it in a way that makes sense to you do please do feel comfortable and free with stopping me and asking what I'm talking about because I guarantee you You'll, you'll say that and there'll be three other people who are too scared to ask for fear of looking silly in front of the group who will love you for having said, excuse me, I don't know what that means, because now they they get to find out as well. Like it, the most popular people in a creative writing workshop group are the people who ask the dumb questions, right? Right of course we might be slightly in awe of the person who seems to have read everything who seems to have effortless knowledge you know they, they, they you know people can be erudite and intelligent without rubbing your nose in it you know they're not always arrogant they're just clever right they're just sparky they just this is their domain that they know a lot about um i'm not saying it, you're, you're you'll always attract resentment for knowing stuff but i don't think you ever really Attract resentment for not always being the smartest person in the room, and being willing to put your hand up and say, "I don't know what's <laughs> going." Can you explain that a bit, please? Um, for most people, that's a one. It, one it raises their status relative to you, so they feel good. If not like being around you, they don't feel you don't make them feel stupid. Secondly, you just learn lots more. Like, as soon as you're willing to say, I don't know anything about that, people explain, then that knowledge gap has often been closed. And then you actually do know more stuff. So ironically, well, not really ironically, but counterintuitively, perhaps, the more willing you are to be ignorant, I've found personally, um, and cop to that ignorance and embrace it and ask questions, the um, the more that ignorance kind of uh, dissolves, or the more you discover, I'm not sure ignorance ever really disappears, in the sense that the questions just get crunchier and finer, and uh, you know certainly the work I've been doing recently, I've discovered that that y- often when you answer a question, you're just kicking the can down the road. Um, and in any case, so uh, as I said, there'll be digressions during this, but um, doing this. Writing this course, this 100 day writing challenge has been, um, well, you know, shall I address the the sickly hacking and sneezing elephant in the room, which is that when I started writing it in December, I didn't know that there was going to be, I mean, I know none of you are accusing me of knowing this, but I didn't know there was going to be a global pandemic that was going to lock people in their houses. But I did start by saying, look, at some stage... If you attempt to write any big project, including like a novel, for example, at some stage something will go wrong, right? Either in your personal life or with the world, something will intervene. You, So much creative writing advice talks to us as if we're just sort of ampules of spirit energy floating in a kind of sort of pale amniotic fluid uh, who just project words onto a page through the power of thought, like rather than material flesh and blood beings moving through time, getting older, getting sick, dying uh, in an imperfect world where stuff goes wrong, where we have to earn a living, where we have relationships, where stuff happens and stuff happens unexpectedly. And over the length of time that you need to put in to write a novel, it's just inevitable that life is going to throw... Um, what I believe baseball fans uh, allude to metaphorically as curveballs, your way, and uh, you're going to have to deal with that. And I think so many people stop writing because of something like a bereavement or a relationship breaking up or losing a job or, or positive stress like or I I say positive in kind of like heavy inverted commas but like moving house or getting married or becoming a parent I don't mean any of those things are horrible or negative you know you can move to a new house and it'd be amazing getting married certainly my experience of getting married has been I'm really great right like I'm really happy I did it my experience of becoming a parent has been It's one of the most wonderful things that ever happened to me, probably the most wonderful thing. doesn't mean they don't come with a bunch of change and a bunch of stress or just distractions, right? And that kind of stuff is happening all the time. You know, there's no such real thing as a, there's not not really such thing as a normal life. I don't think that's the way life works. Much as we would, and I include myself heavily in this bracket, uh, would love to sort of duck the profound, of being a human being who's alive right i don't really a lot of the time want to deal with the big questions i imagine that i can kind of uh decide elect to opt out of the big stuff about being a human and just live this kind of provincial uh if not be becolic then sort of simple existence of Routine and mundanity, and and that somehow then my concerns are kind of what's on TV, and uh, oh, I wonder. I'll oh, make myself a nice cup of tea, and oh, have we run out of biscuits? That that becomes the sort of that that becomes the borders of my world, and then the big questions about being alive and the big problems are for the philosophers and the generals and the politicians and the sort of religious people. And not for me. And it turns out you can't actually elect... You can't make that decision to cut yourself off from the world. You are still in it. And it will find its way in, right? And so over the... I knew that the course... If I was releasing episodes once, one per day, that it, if I started on January the 1st, that it wouldn't be up and uploaded and complete until April. That's just simple maths. But what I didn't realise would be sort Of how much everybody who was listening, and I and know by no means I actually I'll come back to this in a sec, but I actually wasn't really expecting many people to start it until it was completely uploaded. That was my experience with the Couch to 80k course, that pe- a lo- most people didn't start doing it until the entire course was up, and then there was a rush of people starting to do it. This course was a little bit different, I don't know if it was just because I've got a bit more of a reputation now, I don't know if. Uh, it was launching it on January the 1st, made it just a sort of bit more uh, in sync with people's calendars for starting something new. Maybe I was just more aware of people starting, who knows. But um, whenever I missed a day uploading, I got messages and emails immediately. People were going, I can't find the next episode. And I was like, oh, holy shit, People are people are doing these as I upload them wow okay that's a pressure I didn't expect to have and it's a nice pressure to have don't get me wrong but it just wasn't how I expected things to shake out but suddenly everyone doing the course had this same experience of a global pandemic sweeping around the world um I found elements of it really really hard what's been going on uh you, those of you who listen to the podcast will know that of my mental health is one of the things I talk about quite a lot and uh, something that I've been uh, wrestling with and engaging with for years now and certainly things had been really really good and then when the sort of like it felt like the shutters came down really really quick and I found that quite scary and I don't think I'm alone in that but when you have spent a long time fighting anxiety I think even in the language I'm using about around anxiety fighting it tells you that there may have been some uh suboptimal approaches in uh how I was trying to Engage with it. This idea that it was something that I had to get rid of and fight, but um, yeah, it was. It was. I've had some rough days and weeks, and now I am doing pretty great. I am pretty happy. Like they also passed, and I had support from people around me. Um, It was pretty scary. Suddenly thinking, oh gosh, if I get super anxious now, it's difficult to if I need it, it's difficult to get support. I can't go and find someone to therapy me face to face. I'm stuck indoors. Eee. I'm stuck around my family. So if I freak out, I'm going to freak them out. I've, you know, all sorts of things. And I'm aware people around the world have been having it worse. So then that becomes another thing. You become guilty. Oh, gosh. And then I felt bombarded by news and social media and every email I'm getting saying in these uncertain times, in these challenging times, in these unprecedented times. I hope this email finds you well in these difficult times. just ev- So anyway, I, I just did some fairly heavy triage, cut out all news from my diet, which to be fair, like from September to the end of 2019, I didn't consume any news whatsoever. And that had been a hugely successful experiment for me. <laughs> uh, turned out it didn't turn me into... It turned out I wasn't holding up the entire world. Um, and my reading the news didn't have much impact on uh, what happened in the world. I wasn't controlling it, so I could just let it go. And I just don't feel the need to consume it. And I've, I've done this. And then I got back into it because I felt like, oh, I'd, I'd done that. And I was feeling much better. And what's been useful for me about the pandemic is um, being forced to engage, re-engage with some with some things like that, with cutting out the news, cutting out social media. I've got to say, don't miss them. <laughs> don't miss them at all. Really, really, really good call on my front. Not shaming anyone for consuming news or social media, but I would say everyone I mentioned it to has gone oh God, yeah, that's a good call. I wish I need to do that. And they don't do it. I've never had anyone go, really? I find uh, social media is kind of essential for me. I never regret like being on it or the time I spent feels like a good investment. No, no one ever says that. I mean, maybe they're just flattering me, but still for me, um, my engagement with both um, has been largely pathological. I think um, it does more harm than good. They're not, it's not time that I value spending. And so I moved away from them. I've been doing some other stuff Been doing some finding ways of keeping up with my exercise regime. And to be honest, like finishing off the 100 day writing challenge, hearing from people, just doing it, turning up and doing this really just it feels like stuff I value. It's been hard finding time to record episodes because suddenly we've found ourselves with me and my wife both work full time and we've got a three year old who Now we've got no childcare for and she can't go out anywhere, really. So that has definitely eaten up a lot of our time and put a lot of time pressures on us. But I found time to record. I'm finding time to record now. And um, yeah, I'm feeling all right. I feel like it's encouraged me to sort of exist in the moment that sort of cheesy cliche and not think too far into the future and to let go of some but not all i mean i can tell i i know the areas where i've got control issues still um i can i can they're palpable they're like (laughs) they're like they're like big sort of guy ropes coming out from the tent that I can feel when they twang. They're like strands of a spider web at the moment. Something that is an issue for me that I feel like I need to control to feel like I'm fine. Um, I know about it. So I know I've got stuff to work on and that those would be great areas to release some control and allow change and be fle- and practice flexibility. But bottom line is, we finished the course, folks. Like we, I got it out, and people have been doing it, and people have said that it's been valuable to them, and people have been writing. Now, that's the other thing is, I was just like, why am I making another course? Why am I making a second course? um When I made the first one, that a lot of people quite liked, am I going to do this? And people are going to go, Ah, oh, Tim, not so keen on the sequel. Uh, I think you you've let it go to your head. You know, all these things that a lot of people have about any aspect of their writing, you know, I had as well. People are going to say, Tim, I preferred the first one. I think this one doesn't quite have the magic and spontaneity of the first one. Uh, you know, this is a bit long, blah, blah, blah. So I ex- all of those things existed in my head. And I dare say there are some people who have experienced the course exactly as that. But the good thing about having a course that is, do, you know, it's finding an audience, but isn't like a runaway success, isn't inflicted on loads of people Is you don't tend to get. When people do contact you, it tends to be to say something nice. People aren't, I mean, mostly, there have been one or two emails, but like mostly people share it because they like it and they contact you because they like it. That's that's one of the nice things about like relative obscurity, actually, is you know when someone's really famous or a film is really famous or a book is really famous people start to feel like they're having it inflicted on them and so they start to feel the need or the desire or the right and they definitely do have the right to come out with critiques of it to say this is rubbish actually um and they and they often that feels like a position where they sort of they feel like they're flying into these sort of prevailing winds of public opinion and, and so why can't I put out this balancing thing, this necessary corrective? People don't feel that when something's not very ubiquitous. One, because the people who tend to find it tend to be people who want it. And two, because it just seems a bit mean. So the lovely thing is most, almost always when I hear anything about my courses, people are saying nice things, which is, you know, very pleasant. So I've had some lovely emails from people. Had some really lovely, generous listeners who've helped support the podcast, and that's just amazing, and I feel really grateful for that because I don't have anything behind a paywall. I don't have special episodes for sort of patreon subscribers or anything like that. I just have my coffee page, and people can go there and they can drop me something if they like, but they don't get anything for it um It's always after the fact and very voluntary, but people do it anyway for no. I don't know who's listened to episodes or whatever, but people do it anyway, just to be kind, Um, just to be generous, and yeah, it feels just lovely. But I'm glad, you know, the tone of stuff changed, obviously, as people started to go into lockdown and people all around the world were messaging me now suddenly stuck in their houses... And suddenly, you know, what I was doing with this course had this extra edge of like, oh, this might actually be, it's a kind of longer term project that you can do just in a room remotely that gives you, lets you build towards something. That might be something you have some time for now. I mean, like I say, for some of us, we've got less time than we did before, Um, but. For some people, I know it's been, because they've told me, it's been a positive feature of their day, which is a lovely thing to hear. I, I Obviously, I wish it were under better circumstances. I wish they were like, I'm having this frigging crazy great life at the moment and I'm managing to squeeze in your 10 minutes of writing a day, Tim. just want to say thanks for sort of being the... Um, the pineapple in the uh, fiesta of my life uh, I think it's sort of slightly less of a a delightful bonanza for a lot of people at the moment but I think still meaningful you know that's the thing that I really struggled with actually when the shutters came down and suddenly all the routines that kept I felt kept me safe I couldn't do any more I think I started to experience a big sort of dearth of meaning. It's difficult to explain really, but I hit like a real big, a real big like feeling of depression. And I think it's just like, because suddenly being shut indoors can feel quite meaningless. Like it's like, why am I doing this? What's the meaning of this? What's the, it just seems like a net, it just seems like a, like a net bad thing that's happening. People are, People are dying and then a lot more people are suffering and then a lot, lot, lot more people are just stuck and are missing school and are missing their graduation and are missing holidays and anniversaries and time with loved ones and are missing work that they find meaningful and I've had to cancel gigs And events that they were looking forward to. And a lot of the sort of party side of life is sort of suddenly not available. And I also found that people really quickly were like going, hey, hey, this is going to be really good. I think this would be good for humanity. It's like we're all going on retreat. I feel like we're all like finding ourselves and like, I know. And we're getting this enforced simplicity. It was like three days in. I was like, guys, just, just wait a little bit. Maybe, maybe, maybe save the sort of analysis for after it's happened, not in advance. And and I was getting irritated, right, because I was scared and angry and depressed and uh, you know because I it was affecting me. And then I knew that like it wasn't really about me as well. So then you get this thing of like this big sort of social thing of this is where all you know everyone's in it together and it's a big sort of like group experience and and then you feel resentful because you lose your sense of individuality but you also feel ashamed because it seems incredibly self-indulgent to have these feelings and so now you're having feelings feeling bad for having the feelings which doesn't which makes the feelings grow stronger right because you're trying to shame yourself out of having having certain emotions because they don't fit how you feel the um the socially acceptable way of feeling is so they get louder because they're essentially like a message that's trying to deliver itself and you keep just like trying to shut it out you know they're just an alarm going off and you just keep like burying it under pillows and so it gets louder and louder because it's trying to get heard it's trying to go I'm feeling this way and this is the problem and and actually none of the feelings went away until I was able to express them and express just how upset I was and then and then like an hour later as soon as I'd done that with sort of no filter just was able to talk about how I felt not constantly and talk about the shame I felt about not just like hanging a sign in my window saying thanks NHS workers and thumbs up and then go back to Sitting in a room, picking my ass, like it's just like (laughs) great, well done. Like it's it's it sucks, right? Like it's and 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 feeling angry at middle class people in their big houses acting like they were in the fucking siege of Leningrad because they'd have spent six days only for going, going for one two hour walk in the countryside. Per day and they had to do their ricardo shop online i'm like all right mate you're not fucking you're not nelson mandela like 27 years in prison you you've been in your house a bit and like i i felt all those unkind uncharitable things towards people and i think that's why it's always good for me to get off social media because i start sort of thinking and feeling things in a way that I don't feel terribly proud of you know I don't think it brings out my best side and also because I've got like family and friends working in the NHS right and you know I had a friend message me saying he thought he'd had his first panic attack and they were all doing their training to get ready for this expected influx of flu cases and he was terrified and that wasn't what wasn't what he trained in you know and now there was this huge mobilisation and he said he just felt like there was something coming and now he was waiting for it to land, you know. Like the missiles had been launched and they were just bracing in a bunker for impact. And I think when he sent me that, it, it re- that's when I first started to feel really upset because I was like, oh shit. And I've got, you know, I've got yeah friends and, and family. My mum works in the NHS. So maybe it's easier for me to deal with things like irritation at people acting in a way that I feel is slightly performative or... Unself-aware. Maybe it's easier for me to sort of do that and have those feelings and kind of slightly lampoon people than it is for me to go, fuck, I'm worried about my family. And certainly that would be that. But at the same time, that also feels like the most noble position to take. I'm really worried about my mum. No one's going to go, you asshole, you selfish asshole. You're worried about your mum. I don't think my mum, my mum gets to do a lot of her work the nature of her work is, like, she gets to do a little it remotely anyway. I don't think it's it's posing a huge threat to her. But it's easier to say, again, than, like, actually, all of those things are true. But, like, actually underneath it's like, I'm angry because I'm supposed to be working on a book. And I can't because I don't have any free time because I have no childcare for my daughter. I'm angry because I can't do a lot of the things that I enjoy, like taking my daughter swimming or going for long runs uh, or just having the time to stroll about the house on my own, having alone time, really important to me, suddenly feel really cornered and feeling like if I do feel low or anxious or whatever, then I'm forced to inflict that on my family and, they, and I might be damaging or upsetting them or just revealing myself to be less than I'd like to be. Um, I feel angry because I don't get to do some of the great events that I had lined up for this year. I don't get to run in the Edinburgh Marathon, which I had been sort of training for for months. It would be my first ever marathon and putting all this work in. Uh, I don't get to do that now. And I, and I was going to get to feel sort of good about myself and showboat slightly because I was raising money for, for a charity. I um, And even like the charity thing, I was trying to raise money for... Um, i think they they still get the money and i'm still going to do a a marathon run i'll I'll do it whether i get to do the sort of rescheduled edinburgh marathon or whether i just sort of do my own run and have that be for the sponsorship but um it's for um it's an organization that raises money for um uh, refugee children and children displaced by sort of war conflict and um, natural disasters and things like that and advocates for the rights of refugee children and tries to look after them in their own country as well and things like that and if I'm honest like I chose it because I thought my wife would approve and because I thought it would make me look good like if I'm being completely like nakedly honest that's why I wanted to do it because I thought it would be something that other people that I care about and that who I want to impress would be impressed by. Um, one thing that this sort of pandemic situation has impressed upon me is actually one of the things I felt sort of... first, in the first wave of, like, low feeling and psychic discombobulation, was I was like, oh, my God, like we're we're all family. We are all family. I felt that viscerally. And then <laughs> minutes later... I had the thought that followed on from that because it was a big wave of love for everyone. Even like politicians I don't agree with and things like that. I was like, we can't just always be hating each other. I, I love everyone. I love all human beings. And then I was like, we're all family. We are all family. I mean, from a genetic isopoint perspective, I mean, that's literally true. But... um. And then a minutes later, I was like, "Oh shit! That means my my fucking family are all in danger, and I cannot possibly protect them. That means my family are dying. That means my family are on ventilators. That means oh shit! This isn't this isn't this blissed out feeling. This is like fuck. This is like just being like a a mama hen with like seven billion chicks and just watching them get moaned." down by like heavy goods vehicles as they kind of stream out across a road and you cannot poss- who you're going to pick what can you do and that feeling of kind of like complete impotence and futility and and then thinking about all the problems that the world ha- has and i just and i just my brain like seamlessly sp- spiraled off from pandemic into global warming and then like fuck and then feeling so small and so, like, I get it when we do writing and stuff. And I've talked about this on the show before. Given, like, the gravity of being a human alive in the world and all the things that we could put our time towards, it's not unreasonable for people to go, why write? And I think it's not unreasonable to ask writers not to come up with a glib answer where they go, Writing is what we... We need stories. You know, that's what they'll say immediately. They're kind of like, without missing a beat, they'll go, I think we need stories. I think in times of trouble, you know, what unites us are shared stories, shared narratives, shared myth. It might be true, but I just think there's an unseemly haste for us as writers to kind of... (laughs) feather our own nests and make a case for... Why we're frigging great and why what we do is great. And I think... I think it also has a slight self-serving thing of going, we need writing. And actually a lot of people don't necessarily need stories immediately. I think, like, arts and stories and all those things are hugely important. Of course I do. I've given my life to it, right? So, like, before you start thinking I'm sort of being too down on it, I'm not... Like, obviously, I am on the side of writing and arts and all these things and music and all these things that we take for granted because they're so part of the fabric of the world, right? See, I don't think you can have humans without storytelling, really. I think feel like music is this thing that... And the visual arts are things that transcend language barriers that can bring a group of strangers together who have no common language, no common understanding. It can... It can communicate stuff on a kind of a visceral, emotional level. It can unite people. I just think of, like, like the kind of Gangnam style craze. I think, like, Ban Ki-moon said it was like, called it like a force for world peace. Like that people all around the world were just doing horse dancing and and sharing it. Why? Because it was kind of fun? Because we all kind of got it? That was it. That was, that was enough, you know. All Human beings everywhere could understand how to dance and dance together. And I think that's amazing, you know. So I'm not against the arts, but I just think we're very quick to kind of... to kind of gloss and furnish our, our role. But also I think there's a kind of a much more fundamental role. It's like, why write and people start talking about the output and the... 12 months, 18 months, two years, five years down the line, expected benefit to society. And I want to say, like, what is the point of creating right now in the next five minutes? Because that is often the question that faces writers. The actual real question that stops us writing or starts us writing is not, oh, how can I be sure this will be of value to society? It's like, what else were you going to do with your next five minutes? Seriously? like you weren't you i mean you probably weren't i mean look i mean sure like if if you have a choice between if there's someone hanging off a bridge by one finger and also like a a pad a pad a pan and pad pan and pad pen and pad wow (laughs) somebody didn't sleep too well last night But yeah there's someone hanging off a bridge with one finger on one side and a, a pad and pen on the other I don't think, like, the vital thing to do is cross and start eulogising this stranger's demise. Let me write about this moment in a way. See, if I I pulled you up from this bridge, you might live for another 50 years. But if I write a poem about your death, you will live forever. No, help the person, right? (laughs) Obviously. But it's like, Instead of thinking about the end product and this far-off future, it's like, what is this going to do now? And if you weren't necessarily going to do anything else with your time, actually sitting down and writing and creating and organising your thoughts, it can make you feel more alive. It can make you feel happier. It can create something out of nothing that didn't exist. You know, writing is a very uh, sort of ecologically friendly activity. It can give us all these kind of psychological benefits it can be a sharpening process and it just shows just just if we do it right there's different ways of writing but if we do it right and we pay attention to what's happening it can remind us that we don't really know what the next five minutes holds there is at the center of it i think a fundamental mystery I think like we can uh, we can inquire of it and ask intelligent questions and get to the bottom of many of these aspects of things. I don't think like just that we should venerate mystery as um, sacrosanct. You know, I, I really I've spoken to neuroscientists on the on the podcast, I've spoken to psychologists, sociologists. I'm really interested in asking sort of shrewd penetrating questions about what ha- what's actually going on rather than treating it as this unknowable sort of almost sacred process but i think for the foreseeable future at least it's always going to it's always going to orbit around this nexus of mystery and unknowability and kind of Ca- not chaos but kind of randomness you know that the next the next five minutes the next 10 minutes of your writing if you kind of give yourself to the process almost anything could come out and in doing that you've kind of you've changed the future like i don't know it just seems like it's an area where you've actually got i wouldn't say control but you've got incredible agency. I feel like, actually, in terms of control, you got almost close to none. You've got very little. You've got influence. You've got agency, but you don't have control. You can't really... I've never been able to pick what I write, you know? Either the subject matter or, or really write what was in my head, either. I, I can't... I'm not good enough for that. I don't... Maybe some writers can do that, but, like, for me... There's a, the distance between my brain and the pages, you know, it, I might as well be sort of shuttling things to Jupiter or something. Like it, 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 it's it's a long, long process and things are transformed and mistranslated and I can't get on the page what I wanted to say. And sometimes that process involves a process of change that is positive you know it's for the better that that mistranslates things in a way that makes me look better um that maybe what was in my head was a bit of a caricature a bit small i don't know but um it's just that it seems powerful i think it's okay to write for its own sake for its effects it can have on you for its effects it can have on waking you up to the agency you have to choose what you're going to do with the next five or ten minutes. You know what your next good action is. That's what um. That's what uh, Dr. Tim Pitchell talked about when I had him on the show to talk about procrastination. His sort of central. I don't want to don't want to flatten his very nuanced and backed up with evidence set of points about procrastination, but he talks about like him helping work, he works through procrastination by asking himself, what's my next best, what's my next good action? What's my next, what's the next good action I can take? And that might just be, has he switched his laptop on yet? Okay, so he switches it on. For him to break through procrastination, have I opened up word or whatever? Uh, so he's not sort of constantly in this kind of like holding pattern and never landing the plane. Uh... I noticed I noticed that um that that sentiment appeared in uh in Frozen Two as well. If <laughs> you if you if you've seen that, I had the um mixed pleasure of watching that recently and um yeah. I mean, that line comes up in the film several times as well. Maybe maybe the writers listened to the episode. Who knows? Point being I think creative writing can be a sort of sort of foundational practice a key that can give you clues to all sorts of ways to behave in life that will make you feel a little bit happier and get in your way a little bit less and it's just kind of cool right to make up characters you know like people it's it's tough writing the uh 100 day challenge it's tough doing it i don't mean i'm not complaining I'm just reflecting the, the what's challenging about doing it for me is balancing that sense of wanting to make it fun with actually pushing people into doing stuff they wouldn't ordinarily um, and pushing them into a sort of area where they are uncomfortable and where they thought they couldn't do stuff. Because... You can't really surprise people unless you get them to do stuff they haven't already done. You know, you've got to sort of change people's behavior. And so that's always like a balance that I was constantly umming and ahhing about throughout the course was like, do I push people a bit more and risk or kind of accept that a non trivial portion of people doing this exercise are going to free and stack it because they're just going to go, no, I can't do it and feel like they failed. Or do I wind it in a little bit and then risk not making the most of this next 10 minutes? And it sounds like I've weighted those two responses in a way that means the former would always be the one I'd go for. But I don't think that's necessarily true. I think it's a a balance. Um, And a lot of it is to do with how you, once you've finished an exercise, when you finish the 10 minutes or whatever, it's how present you are for that and how you reflect on it. Because you can write a whole book that does very well and do so in a not very conscious way and come away from it having learned very little and come away from it with negative self-beliefs you know I've spoken to enough authors who've got unhelpful thought patterns unhelpful self-beliefs lots of authors who've told me about their unhelpful self-beliefs I did a very short series on the podcast last year called the psychology of writing i only ended up doing four episodes but i got various authors to tell me their most unhelpful self-belief that they had or what most unhelpful belief they had about writing or their writing and people were sort of very open with me but um it's clear and of course they told me their most sort of pathological beliefs and negative ones because that's what I'd asked for you know I'm sure they have positive beliefs as well they were all you know published professional authors so to an extent they'd overcome those problems or those thought patterns or at least managed to complete books despite them but I think writing is always challenging us to kind of continue despite it often bringing us up against feelings of lack or inadequacy or doubt I think that's particularly the case I don't know if it's the case with absolutely everyone I think it's particularly the case with me I have good days and I have bad days but you know I'm working on a book at the moment I'll talk about it in another episode I don't want to make this episode about that because this one is always going to sit at the end of the course and next week I'm going to start the new season of. the death of a thousand cuts podcast and i'll put a writing ramble in that where i can talk about what i'm up to but you know going back to writing the book i'm writing at the moment and i just sit down and some days i'm pleased with what i write and other days i just feel like i'm coming up against the impossibility of writing and i've given my life to this i have worked towards little else except being a writer I want to make stories, I want to help other people make stories. I want to make great stories, I want to help other people make great stories. That's, from the professional side of my life, that is it. That's what I want to do, until I die. And as far as I'm aware, at that point, all my memories will disappear. Human consciousness doesn't survive death. Um, I'll rot down into the ground and um, it'll be as if I never existed from my perspective. There's nothing like i'll be gone i know that sounds very dark but that's just that's just how an atheist believes right and i wouldn't have designed it this way believe you me but like the and and i'm just trying to impress upon you the gravity of like i, I want to write my whole life and then sitting down and going i'm not very good at this <laughs> like i've committed to this now i think this is what i want to do i'm shitted <laughs> what why are you doing it then Surely, like the the we 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 were led to un to understand, we were to believe that like when you you sort of, like become an artisan, and you make very fine violins or Swiss clocks or something in your workshop, and and you labour, and the things you come out with are works or objects of exquisite beauty, like there's no. There's no. Oh, I made a shit violin today. <laughs> we don't. Um, we don't picture the the violin maker's workshop, and it's just full of like bollocks, tuneless violins, and him going, "Shit, shit, I'm a shit violin maker." Might be a she. Oh shit, I'm a shit violin maker. Look at this, is crap. I don't even know. That doesn't look like doesn't look like the picture that I drew. I don't know whether they do they draw a do they have to draw a violin but they must have to measure the manual any kind of manual task is pretty much beyond me at the moment but like at the moment of course later on i'll become brilliant at doing violins but like i don't know like of course people must have these du- and then so then there's the then it's like oh but everyone has doubts creative doubts and whatever that's surely that is part of it so you'd think then, knowing that, you would go, well, okay, I'm fine because everyone feels like this. You have that thought, and then you look back at the page and you go, no, it's still shit. <laughs> like It's not... Yeah, people have doubts, but this is shit. Like, this is not... I know my agent and editor are going to say this is too long. I know they're going to say this is too digressive. I know people are going to read this and say, Tim, this is boring. I know people are going to read this and... Say or whatever because I don't have any idea what people are going to think really but you just and maybe it's not ideal at the moment maybe you're onto something and there are a few elements but those are specific discrete elements that can be edited maybe the whole thing's crap but like what are you going to do like because what you can't do is just stop We well, can but what you can't do as a solution to the problem that will result in a book is stop The only way to progress in any sense is to keep going. Because you learn through doing. Because you discover what you mean by writing more. You know, the the old lady who apologised and said she would have written a shorter letter, but she didn't have the time. It takes a while to figure out what you think and then cut shape right it's why these writing rambles are always longer than if i had written out what i thought and then often you you know you hit some of your sort of wham lines your conclusions towards the end then you go ah and you can kind of like cut stuff down you find that you maybe some stuff was more appropriate for another argument and you can move that into some other area and maybe you repeated yourself or digressed in a way that means you know that just people don't need to hear and you can cut things down and make it leaner it doesn't make it an enjoyable well not even not enjoyable it's not always flattering especially if you feel like your self-esteem and sense of identity are tied into what is coming out that's a very dicey see that this is the thing is like you're going well surely like a a master craftsmen of violins wouldn't feel like this so you now you're going okay so this is a threat to my identity whether i can produce because now i see myself as a writer Now i see myself as a writer i'm not just a writer i'm a writing tutor i'm like a writing guru now so how come i'm finding it difficult well because i'm just a fucking writing guru who's also human i kind of use guru as like a as a as a nasty way of saying teacher don't we It's a writing teacher. I'm trying to say guru to make myself, try to scold myself as if it's pretentious to try and help people. And again, like all these little moments of self-criticism, after a while you can start noticing, you don't have to try and squash them. You can just go, oh, hello. All right, screw tape. Thank you for that. You big writing guru, he says to me. He said, there you go. Can't you do this better? Can't you do this better first time? Well, evidently not. But thanks for for noticing all the mistakes. I know you're trying to protect me. That's really helpful. I'll probably need to call you in later, actually, because you've got a shrewd eye. That's the way you can start working with that inner critic. It's rough, though. I don't want to let people down. I don't want to let down the people who I feel have put a huge amount of faith in me. I don't want to let down the professionals who to invest money in me and my ability to write. I want them to be vindicated and for them to go, I'm really glad that we bought Tim Clare's book because, or sold, i agree. Really glad I sold Tim Clare's book because it's done really well and found an audience and he obviously put his heart and soul into it. You know, I care about them. I care about people buying my books and enjoying them and going, wow, and just getting it and having a lovely time. Um, and it's hard not to start applying all those filters as you write because you're also trying to check, am I going off course? Am I going off course? Is this the right way? Am I going off course? Because if I'm going off course, I need to course correct early. So I don't, and all this, all this stuff. I mean, of course you're not, it's not navigation. You're not steering an ocean liner or a plane. There's not any mountains you can crash into. It's creative writing. You can do edits. You can do redrafts. You can, start again all sorts of things you can do you know i've got various fiction projects that are on the back burner that are in various states of disrepair um and they're like they feel like sort of it feels like i've got a big garage with like three or four different classic sports cars up on blocks with their sort of bonnets popped open and half the engine in bits on the floor from each one and i and occasionally I'll sort of open the door and look at them and and think am I kind of kidding myself am I going to actually go back to them because it feels like they've been in there a long time there's like a bit of spider web coming from the end of that bonnet down to the radiator I don't know what a car has that would be be better with a sort of more specific reference in there would have made it feel more concrete to you and it would have added to my authority that's the beauty of crunchy specificity um but you know what you get the idea right like i even as i work on this project that i've been paid for and sold and i'll talk about on some other episode but and i've got a deadline for i think about the other stuff that i'm not working on and i worry am i neglecting it am i ever going to go back to them am i kidding myself Am I losing? Did I not strike quickly enough? All sorts of stuff. It's, it's easy to do this kind of error monitoring behavior we You're trying to catch yourself in the act of making mistakes. And I wrote the course. I wrote my two courses as a way of trying to help people. And maybe maybe you're one of those people. Constantly trying to criticise and inhibit their way to creating. Criticism, discernment, the analytical mind, editing, deletion, all of these things are so essential and intrinsic to the creation of art. But they can quickly become pathological and take over and the more attached you are to how your work is perceived the more attached you are to a sense of identity the more you take observations and criticisms that you make of your own work as reality and attacks on yourself rather than observations that themselves can be flawed And there are often observations of corrigible, changeable, fixable problems. The more you lose that sense of play and lose sight of the importance of creating with a slight sense of mischief, which I've talked about in the course and I've talked about before, of course, I'm. Of course, I talk about these things because I'm partly trying to teach myself, trying to teach myself in a way that might be futile. Who knows? But Trying to remind myself and wake myself up to the importance of play and joy and a kind of flippant sense of you know what, fuck you. I'm not. I'm not right. I'm not right. And you know, you know what? I love making this podcast and I love making the course because I didn't have anyone to tell me what to do didn't have any layers of people saying don't write this don't write this this isn't how I would have done it Tim don't make that silly joke here oh you know Tim don't talk about this Tim I feel you're repeating yourself I wouldn't use this line cut this down stuff that frankly has made all my books better stuff that I only really resent sometimes when I'm feeling scared and insecure because I feel it's like about me because when I was a A kid at school when I was 10, I started, you know, if I'd make a spelling mistake or a mistake in my writing, I would cross it out by striking a line through it, then cross hatching lines down, then cross hatching diagonally in either direction, and then scribbling in circles until the word was completely obliterated by ink, so you could not see the mistake I'd made. That's how attached I was to this sense of being the cleverest, and words and writing stories, and needing to be able to do it. I'm like, I could barely sleep last night, worrying about the chapter I'm working on and my brain trying to solve it. Worrying it's too long. Worrying it's boring. Worrying people won't like me for reading it. Worrying I come across as arrogant. Worrying I don't make a good case. Worrying I'm missing things out. Trying to solve, 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 solve. Fear of not getting it right. Fear of that I could have done, that there's a kind of platonic ideal of the chapter of the book out there that I could have done if only I'd solved it, if only I'd got it right, if only I'd worked hard enough. That kind of stuff will wear you out to the point you can't write at all. And I've experienced that a lot. And, you know, sometimes I wonder whether, you know, you think about your career or whatever and, and you think, Is there a kind of lost self? I read about this idea of like the lost selves in, in the work in of this psychologist, Laura King, but this idea of paths that you take and the other version of you that then splits off from that. A, a putative and entirely imaginary other version of you. And how that can cause people real suffering. And it's silly in a way, but it's, under, it's a very human thing as well. All I can say is to the extent that you can let go of... This is my opinion. And this is what I've learnt from writing. And this is what I've learnt from the lockdown as well. And I struggle with it. But to the extent that I can let go of control over the future. Of wanting control over the future. To the extent I can let go of wanting to be able to predict the future. To the extent I can let go of wanting to be able to control people's reactions to me. To the extent I can let go of wanting to be able to control how things I do are received. To the extent I can let go of wanting to be able to control how well I can do an activity. To the extent I can let go of regret about perceived mistakes or perceived inadequacies. To that extent. I am happy and free. And to the extent that I try to pursue control over those things, a type of control that is completely impossible to in- attain, um, I suffer. And so that's my advice to you. Really, is what we can control is turning up. What we can control is 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 applying a kind of benign, compassionate attention to our work and our feelings around our work. But try as you might, you cannot bludgeon yourself into success or into writing well. And if you do manage to write well, or you are su- successful despite doing that to yourself, it was. Be aware it's not, it was never because of that. And you may end up poisoning all the joy that that success could have, and relief that that, joy, that success could have brought you. That's a bit of a darker note than I wanted to end on. I suppose what I'm saying is the fruits of creative writing and the real joys of it, there are some longer term ones as well, but we can't really control them, so we kind of leave them and they may grow around us while we kind of sleep but just to sit down and do 10 minutes and write a list do some silly exercise that that doesn't require any other conditions to happen we can let go of control of what comes out except in a sense the uh, the imaginary premise of the muse And say, okay, this is what comes out is not really under my control, but turning up is, and having fun with it and bringing a sense of uh, curiosity and mischief to it—that is a bit more under your control, and and no one can stop you, and it's a form of sort of radical self-enfranchisement that can give you can make you, I think a more successful writer than the best-selling authors out there. If you can sit down and love writing for 10 minutes, then, frankly, you make that maybe 10 minutes more enjoyable writing than some extremely successful authors get in 10 years. And that's their great tragedy, really. Right, I think I'm going to leave it there, except to say if you did the course... um, Well, I know... Because I'm going to... Rem- ah, I'll say, if you did the course, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. I just remembered that now what I can do is talk about some books that you might want to read about creative writing. Um, one that I I don't think you can I don't think it's in print anymore, so you'd have to get... I think you'd have to get a second-hand copy, but is Ursula Le Guin's The Language of the Night. Ursula K. Le Guin, one of my favourite authors. It's a series of essays about science fiction and fantasy. I think it's amazing. I think she's got so much interesting stuff to say about genre writing, but also writing in general and stories in general. She's just so, so, so engaging. There's no exercises in it. Although, if you do want a book by Ursula Le Guin with a bunch of writing exercises, that is completely genre agnostic. Why not get yourself, because I believe it is still in print, Steering the Craft by Ursula Le Guin. It's a series of the lessons that she did uh, years ago including the exercises and there's some extracts of some different bits of fiction there's a bit of poetry in there as well and um, it's a great little course and you get to be taught by Ursula Le Guin who's an amazing writer so if you want to do some more exercises I'd really recommend checking out Steering the Craft by Ursula Le Guin. Um, I talked about in the course but the art of writing fiction by andrew cowan andrew cowan's been on the podcast before he's been my kind of creative writing teacher and uh, occasional sort of writing mentor for well early on when i started out he was one of the first people who taught me creative writing and um i think his book is just a great compendium of different ideas for creative writing exercises and he just kind of like very thoroughly goes through quite a few of the considerations you might have um about writing fiction um he's really good on the line he's really good at at the nuts and bolts of creative writing without being dry um and if you listen to the episode where i interview him he talks about how one of the exercises in there helped him out of a dry spell with his creative writing and how you know he allowed him to produce a novel very quickly as he did one of his own creative writing exercises and it worked for him which is amazing right Um, So, yeah, The Art of Writing Fiction by Andrew Cowan. I'll put a link to that in the uh, show notes as well. Um, I am a really big fan of Samuel Delaney's um, about writing. He's sometimes uh, known as Chip Delaney as well, I think, to his friends. But um, Samuel R. Delaney is the uh, author, does mostly science fiction um, but he did the only problem I say about, about writing is that it seems to be only available for ridiculous amounts of money, like twenty seven quid or something for a paperback book. But if you can get it at a reasonable price. The subtitle is seven essays, four letters and five interviews. Um which makes it sound again rather dry, but actually it's really entertaining. And so Samuel Delaney is just one of these writers who's just so lucid about creative writing i was kind of almost astonished well he just talks about like how a writer the actual mechanical process of a writer writing a sentence and what's going on in their head and what's appearing on the page and i was just like oh yeah he's like that and he's just he's really really interesting just hyper intelligent he was kind of like a prodigy he was i think by 20 he had several novels out already um and then he just has produced loads and he's he's taken huge risks in his writing as well really in many ways ahead of his time as a writer as well um none of his novels are like my deep in my heart favorites, like I think a lot of them are quite quite challenging um some of them have some quite challenging content as well in terms of like being i'm talking i'm talk, i mean like he wrote one that is just incredibly sort of violent and upsetting and it's it's kind of supposed to be i think but i don't really know what to make of it i think it's called hog with two g's and um it's, it's quite a yeah i don't know what to make of some of his stuff but um fiction wise but the book is another bits i've enjoyed you know um but A lot of it's quite, you know, some of it's quite experimental and challenging that way as well. But um, about writing is really, really, really good and really clear. And he talks about experimental art in a way that makes it very accessible as well. In a way, he kind of explains what the kind of games are behind it. Um, Like a classic book about creative writing is is Robert McKee's story um, that, tends to be so that's a little bit more skewed towards screenwriting but he talks about story structure it's quite prescriptive in that he's like this is what a story looks like and he's kind of like outlining a kind of hollywood model of what story shapes are like but it's easy to follow and i think it is worth reading even if it just gives you a model that you then sort of sort of spend some time tearing apart or bouncing your own ideas off I think it's quite a good grounding in some basics, but I just wouldn't take it as gospel. The idea isn't isn't to read it and take his sort of position as sort of didactic ex cathedra pronouncements on how you should write um, or what a story is. I would kind of ignore that side of it um, and rather just see it as one person's proposition of what a model could be of creative writing. Um, I think i think that's probably just about it for ones that i've found particularly useful i've, I've read a lot of shit ones as well or ones that have got one or two good bits in and then a lot of a lot of rubbish in there as well a lot of filler um but those oh i really like um uh the classic kind of like natalie goldberg's writing down the bones as well which has kind of got a kind of zen edge to it but it's uh, lots of short essays on creative writing and um i think it's just nice to read and makes me want to write when i do and it's got a couple of creative writing exercises in there but originally just talking about why she writes and um what writing does for her um and it's been around for a while and it's pretty good um and i'd also say um if you if you've not read bird by bird which uh, by anne lamott like a lot of people recommend it and i was, i uh, i read it and i was like oh i see why you recommend this it's a really good very funny book on creative writing and admitting to the struggles of writing as well i'm all, like i i i'm all, i always had this like moment of holding back when we talk about the struggles of creative writing because i don't want to I wouldn't want writers to us to start like acting in this kind of caricatured way where we start showing, we almost start parading how difficult we find writing as a kind of badge of honour or proof that we're real writers, right? And I'm not saying, sorry, to be clear, I'm not saying that's what Anne Lamott does, but I'm always slightly nervous that I'm starting to kind of edge towards a kind of performative neurosis that implies I'm of an artistic temperament. When in fact, like lots of aspects, this is not inevitable. It may well be part of the human condition, us struggling with different things and coming up against ourselves, but different writers engage with this in very different ways and not all of them feel exactly like this. And sometimes I feel quite jealous of the ones that don't feel like this. Uh, And sometimes I have some uncharitable thoughts about them and I start thinking, well maybe if you did worry a bit more your writing would be a bit less shit maybe you don't worry about it because you've just got no standards and then of course the work does very well and I say well that's because readers don't have any standards either and then I'll start going okay so now I think that readers don't have any standards so apparently I'm angsting and wrestling and wasting my time for nothing because there's no audience out there for it as well and then immediately you get very depressed and then you're not writing while somebody who cares less apparently you imagine in your head complete caricature of them that you don't know them you don't know what they go through privately um and, and suddenly you're feeling very bitter and grumpy and peed off i just i just want to say like it's great when we can share that we find things difficult but don't feel like if you're enjoying writing you're somehow a fraud you're not um but I think Anne Lamott does a really good job of making the struggle seem normal and okay and that's a lovely thing to do for people right so I'll try to put links to them in the show notes but that's that the last one was Bird by Bird by Anne Lamott if you haven't read it okay so just thank you for hearing me out I think yeah I think we're done here well that went medium length for one of these so that's not too bad but thanks for doing the course if you've done it if you haven't done it you can i haven't given any spoilers really so you can wheel round and start day zero on the 100 day challenge writing challenge um and, and and yeah just thanks for turning up and thanks for your labor thanks for your work i really appreciate it um can't always control how i feel about writing i can never control how i feel about writing but it feels like this has been something of real, real, real value for me to have done. I just, I feel really great about it. And I don't always feel that way about my work. So I'm just really happy. <laughs> That's the truth. I've just done something creative that I didn't know what was going to happen. And it's done. And I could have talked myself out of it by just saying it's no point. And nobody asked me to do it. But I did it anyway. And now a thing exists and it's out in the world living its own life. It's a wonderful feeling. So if you were part of that, thank you very much. And the fourth season of Death of a Thousand Cuts will be starting very soon. And I've already actually recorded a couple of interviews with different authors. And... uh, I'll be trying to set up some other stuff as well so i hope to see you at the podcast and if you haven't listened to previous three seasons in the back catalog then i not only recommend i pushly insist that you go back and listen to some of those because i'm sure there's stuff that you'll find there of great value lots of me chatting to a variety of different authors and also looking at listeners first pages giving some critique and feedback and also just talking about different aspects of creative writing okay take care you're a really really wonderful person and um it's lovely and a privilege to get to talk to you and i will be speaking to you real soon i hope you have a wonderful writing week